0: Our scripture this morning is in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. Again, that's 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. May the Lord bless this reading of his holy word.
1: Let's go ahead and pray together. Father in heaven, I bow my head towards your holy temple because of your steadfast love and your mercy. And because you have exalted above all things your holy name and your word. So we pray now that you would exalt your holy name and that you would exalt your word for us to hear and see your glory. And I pray, God, that as we behold your face, that we would be inspired to pursue our joy all the more in experiencing your love for us. So my prayer request this morning is simple. I ask God that you would help us to know and to taste the sweetness of your love and give us a flavor of joy in so doing, that we might as brothers pursue our joy all the more in knowing your love. Oh God, affirm our hearts this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would examine our hearts, but we pray also for confidence so that we can know we are truly yours. Help us, Lord God, to live more and more as your children in your family. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage of Scripture this morning that we are dealing with starts with a clear reference to Jesus' commandment in John 1334 where he says that this is the new commandment that I give to you that you should love one another as I have loved you and if you remember the scene in your head and think about it you'll remember that on that occasion Jesus was spending his time with his disciples and he was basically teaching them that he is the Lord So there they were in that night with maybe a washcloth and a basin and a bowl of water, maybe a dark room with dusty floors and a stool perhaps, and some stinky, smelly, dirty, muddy feet that Jesus was about to stoop down into the ground and wash after he just explained to his disciples that I am the Lord. And Jesus furthermore said that unless you allow me to wash your feet, then you will have no part of me whatsoever. Now this was baffling to the disciples. It was very difficult for them to understand and grasp what was going on. It would be like, to make an illustration from a modern day event, maybe a smidget like, when we see the Spanish soccer team, since I'm a soccer fan, win the World Cup, and after the game, instead of going up on the platform where the confetti and all of that glamour showers down on them, and they receive adulation and accolade from important people, and they get to hoist 400 ounces of gold shaped like a soccer ball, give or take 400 ounces, I don't know, Instead of them doing that, it would be like they get scrub brushes instead and they're sent off to wash the bathrooms that were just ravaged by the 80,000 fans that came to watch them win. It was totally unheard of, that kind of love that Jesus was talking about. And his disciples had a very difficult time grasping what he meant by that kind of love. It was an extremely odd thing that occurred that night when Jesus Christ broke into human history and redefined, or maybe defined for the first time, what real love actually is. And of course, that night when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, that was merely pointing forward to an event, to a much more important event, yet it was describing his death on the cross, that he was going to lay down his life which was another event that his disciples had an equally difficult time really grasping. So let me remind us all before we go any further that John is ultimately writing for our joy. He wants us to find our joy in God and more than that or another thing is in this passage that we're going to deal with today is that there's, there's basically two categories of people that he's going to spell out those who are of the devil the evil one and he's going to help us to see what those look like and then that's going to be contrasted against those who are of God born of God children of God and we see those two and I think John goes even further I think we can draw some implications for how the children of God ought to look and how they ought to behave and how they ought to act and live their lives in order that they would find their joy in God. So my first goal this morning is to help us to see what it looks like to be a child of the devil, what it looks like, on the other hand, to be a child of the living God, so that we can have confidence and joy before the Lord to know that we are his child. And second of all, I want us As children of God, as I mentioned before, to understand how we ought to then live as children of God so that we will find our joy in experiencing God's love for us by loving as we ought to love the brothers. All of us want joy. Amen? We all seek for joy. And as Pastor Charlie has been pointing out over the weeks here, God knows much better how we ought to discover joy. After all, he made us. He owns the manual to our hearts and our emotions and our affections. Let's tap into what he has to say about that. So, let's go to verse 11. John reminds us of the command of Jesus to love one another using the example that he gave. Then immediately after that, he goes back to Cain. And if you guys remember the story between Cain and his brother Abel, he draws some things from that he says that Cain was of the evil one and he murdered his brother so why does John go back to Cain what is he trying to get at by going immediately back all the way to the beginning um, here's a few thoughts first Cain and Abel were really the beginning um, in a sense They were the sons of Adam, the first descendants of a sinful generation, right? So Adam and Eve, there they were in the garden. They take the fruit and they sin in rebellion to God. And of course, God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And then we know that they didn't drop dead right there and then in the garden, right? Yet, yet, um, from that point on, we see It didn't take long at all before it became plainly obvious that the human race is now perpetuated in the cycle of death and hatred towards one another. Right off the bat, the first son murders his brother. And there we see that the human race does abide in death. And more importantly yet, the severity of Cain killing Abel, I think, is heightened When we consider that they are brothers, they're family, they're born of the same parents. And just as we would expect them to love because they're blood brothers, they're united by blood, we expect them to love, therefore. That's kind of our inherent expectation. And rather than loving as blood brothers ought to love, there is blood shed instead. Now that's a very important point. Because it seems that John is using Cain and Abel as a picture of brothers for believers. He's using them as a picture to make a point, to help us to see how we should not live. Now, pay careful attention to the way that John uses and talks about brothers in the verses uh, 11 through 15. He mentions brothers a lot. Now first he emphasizes how wrong it is that Cain killed Abel because they were brothers by blood and therefore expected to love. But then he is, he addresses, he's addressing the brothers, right, which are believers. He's addressing believers that we should not be like that. Why should we not be like that? Well the answer is because we are brothers, right? But here's the difference. When John is talking about Cain and Abel being brothers, he's talking about them being brothers by blood. However, when he talks to the believers and says, you are brothers, he is saying, you are united by the Spirit. You are born of the Spirit of God. And that's why I think at the end of verse 24, he says, those who abide in God abide in the Spirit whom he has given us. John goes out of his way to point out the fact that we are now part of God's family and therefore brothers because we are born by the same Spirit. And that is our unification. So, he's addressing believers who are born of the Spirit and therefore family members, therefore brothers, and we are supposed to therefore be characterized by love as a member of God's family and not murder, and even more so, hatred. See, most of us in here will probably not slay somebody else. That's a good thing, right? However, we might be prone to hatred, and John addresses that. It's unfitting. We should be characterized by love, but not hatred. It seems plainly wrong to us that Cain murdered his brother, Abel, especially so because they are brothers. And now that is the picture that helps us to see how wrong and unfitting it is for us as believers who are bound by the Spirit to hate our siblings in Christ. So John goes on to prove that Loving our brothers is an indication that we are alive in God and abiding in God. So if you want to know whether or not you are a child of God, you can ask yourself this simple question. Do I have love for the brothers or am I characterized more so by hatred to those who call themselves Christian? And You can do some hard checking there. Ask yourself that question and wrestle with that. Are you striving to love? Now praise the Lord that verse 16 follows after verse 15. Why? Because in the middle paragraph, John clearly outlines for us and defines what love actually is. You see, perhaps it might have been the same in John's day, but for us in our day, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but there are so many ideas about love floating around out there in our world. Nobody, and I mean not just believers, but believers and unbelievers alike, would disagree with the fact that we should love, right? Love is widely accepted. It's a given. We should indeed love. And therefore I say that love really is, if we try to pin it down, it's kind of a nebulous, subjective, relativistic thing or idea that is promoted from bumper stickers to midday talk show hosts and everything in between. All kinds of people have all kinds of ideas of what love is really, what what it really is. In fact, if we were to do a survey, and you were to go up to random people and ask them, do you think you're a loving person? I would guess most of them, if not all, would say, yeah, I think I'm pretty much a loving person. And I think that's because they identify and define love according to their own subjective terms, the way that they see it and the way that they understand it. But John is not leaving us guessing here. He doesn't leave or he doesn't stress the importance of love. Love, 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 love. And then just leave us up to ourselves to figure out what does he mean by this love? He actually spells it out for us. In the Holy Spirit in him, I would, I would submit to you, they understand that if they did merely leave it up to us and to our own intuition, we would be like a boat in the middle of a sea without an anchor, without a motor, without an oar. Totally up to the wind and the waves to determine what love actually is. Whatever direction the wind blows, well that's the way we'll go. Whatever way the culture goes, well that's what love is. In fact there are all kinds of ideas of love as I've mentioned already and as it is a highly subjective and relativistic thing there does seem, and this is my perception, And I just want to offer this to you. Don't take this as gospel. But it does seem in our day that there is one thread that kind of weaves its way through all of the kind of definitions of love out there. And that thread is perhaps tolerance or acceptance. The idea that I am not going to impose any kind of moral standards on you because then, therefore, I don't want you to impose any kind of moral standards on me Therefore, we figured it out. We don't need God. We know how to live. We can all be happy, and I can do whatever I want. Is actually rooted in selfishness, not selflessness. It's not love, actually. And in fact, there is one thing that this kind of secular, satanic worldview of love actually is intolerant of, and that is Christianity. Believers loving in deed and in truth. When Christians stand up and live for the truth, it tears down the fake facade of this worldly love to expose the fact that they really do hate the truth that exposes their darkness. Dark hates light. Deception, children of the devil who are deceived, hates the truth. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Why? Because their deeds are evil and yours are righteous. So what is true love? Let's get back on track with that. What is true love? John tackles this issue head on by saying, verse 16, By this is we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So don't let it escape your mind that if, unless he would have clearly identified it, we would be lost. God has intervened into human history so as to define and speak on the topic of love and nail it down once and for all. This is what it is. And even more amazingly yet, he doesn't merely speak in word or talk, but God spoke in deed and in truth. And he did that through the life and the death of Jesus Christ. He actually showed love. He demonstrated it. He didn't just say, I love you. He did it in word and deed as well. Deed and truth, that is. That is amazing. Now, there is another level of love that I want to talk about here. We know it so far in the way that we've been talking about it in a Webster's Dictionary sense. Right as a definition that we can point to, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. There's a lot of people who are not Christians that can identify, yeah, that's the way the Christians understand love. We should love sacrificially and all that. That's a definition. There's another level, and it's experiential. And that is eternally more important than the definition. We need to have the definition, and we need to have the experience. That right there will separate the wheat from the tares. Have you experienced the love of God that brings forth unspeakable joy in your life? Have you tasted that? Has it been palpable to you? If you are truly a child of the living God through Jesus Christ, the reality of God's love must be more than a definition to you. It has to become experiential, something that you have been deeply impacted by. It is something that we strive to experience, not just once at that moment of salvation, but continually throughout our Christian life. Where do I get this idea of experiential? I get it from verse 17 and 18. You guys look at that. It doesn't say you must have experiential uh, uh, love. But it says... But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So how do I get experiential out of this? Well, the literal word for heart, which I came across in a past sermon I've preached, is splagna, which means spleen literally and it refers to the gut level emotion and affection of a person it's an interesting word it's actually only used about 11 times in the new testament so when you typically read heart in the new testament it doesn't have the word splagna behind it and most times on top of that out of those 11 most of those times it's actually referring to a literal gut or spleen however there is another time in the new testament where it is actually referring to the gut level emotion of a person. And it is in Luke 178, 77 and 78 make it clear. If you guys want to turn there, you can, but you don't need to. It describes the heart of God. The splachna of God. The gut level emotion, the feeling, the affection of God. In that passage, it is rendered tender mercy. And it says that because of the tender mercy of God, he has worked salvation for his people. He has forgiven them of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. Because of the splagna of God, he has been moved to send forth his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins this is very important you guys have to understand many times as we walk our Christian walk sometimes it feels so mechanical perhaps we've been there and we've done that we've heard the message of Jesus Christ being sent forth when God sent forth his son Jesus Christ he didn't do it as a mechanical following a plan okay now it's time to do this he did it as he looked out at his people and he had pity on them. He saw their helpless, hopeless, sinful condition and he was moved with mercy and compassion. He felt literally sorry for us. So much so was he overwhelmed with love that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. That is the basis of our existence as believers. That is the basis uh, upon which we were saved, the motivation of God's love. So if you are calling Jesus your Savior, then you have experienced the love of God in a very joyful and palpable way. And that is why we ought to be characterized By that same kind of love, because it was that kind of love that existed in the heart of God that made us a child of his in the first place. So when we see our brother in need then, I'm going to try to connect this here. When we see our brother in need and we close our splagna, our heart to him, Then the question is, how does the love, how does the splagna of God abide in us? And the answer is, it doesn't. If you can be saved, if it were possible to be saved by the love of God and experience that love and then yet shut your heart, it says, you've never tasted it. You have never tasted that love of God in the first place. But on the other hand, if you have been saved, then you have tasted and experienced that love. And therefore, we can only but reciprocate that to our brothers when they are in need. When we look at our brothers who are in a needy, helpless situation, then the same kind of love that was characterized by God, that looked at us and helped us, would surface forth. And we would help them as well. So, from here, I want to kind of take uh, another step forward and draw out some implications for us. If you guys get anything from this sermon, I really hope that we get this right here. Because as I was preparing this week, I really felt like this is where it burned in a good way. I really felt like the idea of pursuing our joy in experiencing the love of God is the word that maybe would really rest on us as a congregation, as the people of God this morning. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how we can experience or how we can pursue our joy as Christians in experiencing this love of God. Now, verse seventeen, John three seventeen, or first John three seventeen, it gives us an occasion for which we can pursue our joy in God in experiencing his love how can we experience God's love would be another question we could ask well the occasion is this when do we see our brothers in need whenever we see our brothers in need that now becomes an opportunity or an occasion for which we can approach it and pursue our joy in experiencing this love of God let me explain how I think this happens so so When a need comes up, the kind of sacrificial giving and love that would require us to meet the need of our brothers becomes ours. And therefore, we plug into the very heartbeat of God himself. We plug into the very heartfelt love that God had for us in the first place to make us brothers. We plug into that heart that beats with love When we act as God acted towards us in the first place to make us his believers. So when we give sacrificially and meet brothers' needs, the very heartbeat of God starts pounding through our hearts. And when that's why John says, when you love, you are alive in God, because his heartbeat of love is pulsating through your body, and there is joy in that. So... If we know God's love and experienced his heart to make us believers then we simply cannot say when we see brothers in need oh that's just too bad for you i hope it really i hope it works out for you we can't we can't say that that's loving in talk and word we must love in deed and truth that would characterize us that should characterize us as believers and it is a way that we can pursue our joy in experiencing this love of god and finding joy in that This is why I think, again, another perception. But you notice that God doesn't really distribute everything equally across the board. Some people have more resources, some people have less, and that even might be a seasonal thing too. There might be a particularly heavy, burdensome period of your life, and for some it might be smooth sailing. There might be some who have a lot of gifts and capabilities, and some not so much. And I think... The reason why God does that is so that believers will have multiple opportunities all over the place to practice and reflect the love that we were made alive by in the first place. Having the things of the world, when we have the things of the world, as it says in John, 1 John 3.17, and then giving it away based on needs proves that we are not of this world, right? We are alive. By a Father who is in heaven. And that is where our joy is. That is where our inheritance is. So when we have the things of the world and we give it away, it exalts Christ. And it also shows that our hope and our joy does not rest on this earth. As if accumulating things and stuff and things of the world and and status and all that is what really makes us tick. No! We are alive in God. And our heartbeat is His heartbeat. And that is what makes us tick. That's what gives us joy. So when we give sacrificially to others, we essentially reciprocate the love that made us brothers in the first place. And we have the privilege of experiencing the saving and sacrificial work of Jesus Christ afresh every single time we let go of the world. When we let go of the world, it's like we have another opportunity to experience the heartbeat of God coming through us, meeting needs, loving as he loved. Brothers and sisters, we should be characterized by a selfless, sacrificial, other-centered love rather than this worldly kind of love that is essentially self-seeking at the end of the day. Maybe you've experienced the joy I'm talking about. I don't know if you've ever experienced this joy, I hope that you have, I'm sure you guys have. It's the joy of seeing just a little glimpse of the way God loves another person. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you look at somebody and God just shares a little smidget of His love and His heartbeat towards that person. And oftentimes, it brings me to tears. Of joy and it's because we taste the immeasurable love of God and there is so much joy in that so this is why John stresses that brothers love because it is love that made us brothers in the first place love isn't something that we do merely it's not an act only but it is more like who we are at the core of our existence as children of God It's who we are. It's not a generic kind of love that maybe Dr. Phil would affirm. Rather, it's experiential, filled with joy and sympathy and compassion and emotion and heartfelt feeling. It is sacrificial, other-centered, Christ-exalting kind of love. It is a love that no eye has ever seen, nor ear has ever heard, nor has it entered into the thought of man or the heart of man prior to the night that Jesus Christ broke into human history and stooped down in the muck to wash his disciples feet die on the cross so in closing John lays a fairly high standard for us as believers if you look at verse 19 and 20 he tackles the idea and I think he anticipates that wow am I a child of God or not have I, you know, is this all this true of me? And perhaps he talks about doubting, maybe, that would lead our heart to condemn us. He says God is greater than our hearts. So while it's good to test ourselves and examine ourselves, I just want you as believers to take heart in knowing that God knows what's going on in your heart. And we strive continually to be more and more like who we really are. None of us are perfect, right? John makes plenty of uh, uh, room in his letter to understand that none of us have arrived yet. Love doesn't perfectly characterize all of us. There still is roots in, in, of hatred that, that need to be killed and exterminated in our hearts that cause us to wonder, wow, is this true of me? So I don't want you guys to walk away with condemnation here this morning. Take heart and take courage and know that God knows your heart. He knows what's going on down there. And he'll reveal to you if you're his child. But let me, with that, let me just share the impact that this sermon had on me as I was preparing for it. I was asking the question, well, so what? How should this affect me? And one reason I asked this question is because Honestly, I really don't struggle, or at least I wasn't in the last week, with doubting whether or not I'm a child of God. Um, Although it is good, as I said before, to test yourself. So here are some questions that it raised for me. And perhaps you guys can use these to make application as well. In what way is my practice of love or my understanding of love worldly? What way do I hold on to remnants of kind of a secularized, satanic idea of love? As we breathe the air of a secular culture, there are things that rub off and influence us, whether we realize it or not. So hold up the definition of love and ask yourself, what ways have I bought into this lie? of what love actually is, and how do I practice it? How can I function more and more like a believer in God's family? It's another question. How can I discover my identity all the more as a child of God? Another question is, is my pursuit of the world, or is my pursuit of joy hindering me in experiencing real joy, in experiencing God's love. As my pursuit of joy, the way I see I think I need to pursue joy, is that hindering me, actually. Getting real specific, I thought about my wish list. Since we were talking about the world's goods, um, whether you guys have a running wish list of things that you would like to buy if you had the money for it or not. There's probably things floating around in your head that say, oh yeah, you know, if somebody gave me... A million dollars you would buy this and that and that or maybe even a hundred dollars as I go down my wish list I realized and not just my wish list but the way that I would spend my time if I had more time what would I do with it if I could use my skills and my resources my gifts and abilities what would I do with that And I realized that on all those levels, there wasn't any space, really, for other people. The reality that God socked me with is, once I check off all the responsibilities of my life, it's pretty much me from there on in. So, I don't have any examples to point to. I mean, of course, when things come up, we love to meet needs and so on and so forth, but... I can't say right now that there's a real intentional pursuit of other people in experiencing the love of God as I was describing in my life. And I would like to change that. And perhaps God might be calling us as a church to think about, about that aspect of our life. But I don't think that this is a, a, a characteristic of murderous hatred. But it does show that I could pursue my joy in God more so than I do right now. I could be intentional more so about that. So the commandment of the Almighty God is really simple and really good towards the end of this section, isn't it? It's very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another. That's it. <laughs> God really just wants us to be happy. He wants your joy way more than you do. So the question I'll leave you all with as we close, do you trust John and, more importantly, do you entrust God that he knows what it takes better than you do and the world? to help you experience and discover that real, true joy. Do you trust Him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your steadfast love. Thank you for exalting your word. Thank you for exalting your name. And that's what we want here, Lord God. We want you to exalt your holy name because that's where we are joyful, is when you are big and we find our proper place in extolling your greatness. So please help us. I pray that, trust that this sermon has landed on us in in a thousand different ways that I probably don't even imagine yet. So it's up to you, Lord God, we pray, that you will do the work that you intended it to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.